Coming up this evening on NTD Business. Home mortgage rates top 4% for the first time in nearly three years. They could keep rising after the Fed confirmed it will start hiking interest rates. Russian President Vladimir Putin recognizing the economic blow the country is suffering, but also telling Russians they'll recover. And a top Chinese financial officer promises more market stability, but can Beijing keep the promise? That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Paul Graney here live from New York City. Oh, happy St. Patrick's Day, y'all. On the St. Patrick's Day, mortgage rates topping 4% for the first time since 2019. More expensive to buy that dream home, sorry. Mortgage rates are up about a quarter percentage point last week. It just happens to be what the Fed hiked its key interest rate by yesterday. The federal funds rate and mortgage rates aren't directly connected, but when the Fed raises rates, every other rate tends to follow. All eyes now in the U.S. housing market, which has been red hot during the pandemic thanks in part to historically low mortgage rates. So can high home prices withstand higher rates? Builders don't seem convinced. Home builder sentiment is at six-month lows. Now, the UK central bank is also raising rates to tame inflation. Rates up again today for for the third time since December, leaving the Fed in its dust. The Bank of England's target rate is now 0.75%, a little higher than the Fed. Bank of England blaming the Ukraine conflict for sending energy prices higher, although prices were rising long before the war. Global oil prices touched a 13-year high earlier this month. Other commodities up a lot too. The UK's inflation now officially at 5.5%. Before the war, Bank of England expected it to peak over 7%, but now it expects inflation to last longer and peak at a higher level. Raising rates could help, but if the bank moves too fast, it could slow the economy into a recession. And joining us now to discuss global central bank hikes and risks facing the economy is Joseph Lavornia, former chief economist at the White House's National Economic Council, now a senior fellow at America First Policy Institute. Joseph, great to see you. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Joseph, stocks up again this week despite rate hikes. Are you anticipating stress in the economy as we go through this period? I am, and uh, it's not unusual for the stock market to rally at this stage of the business cycle. It's really the bond market uh, that you really want to focus on most. And what we've seen really for some time now, and it's accelerated in light of a more hawkish Fed raising all those rates multiple times you suggested, is the yield curve, the Treasury yield curve, the difference between long and short rates is narrowing rapidly. And if that continues, it suggests we could have a recession later this year. That's what investors should be watching. Mm -hmm. As the chairman mentioned yesterday, the job market is pretty strong right now, right? Are you expecting higher unemployment? Uh, The job market is strong. Uh, Labor market tends to be a coincident to lagging indicator. Uh, labor market, I'd argue, is probably more broken than it's tight, given the dislocations associated with COVID. So the strong numbers we've seen and are likely to see still for the next few months, to me, reflects where we were last year and not where we're going. Uh, I'd focus on more leading indicators of the economy. And yes, uh, if the economy slows uh, as much as I think it will, you will see that unemployment rate rise. Those Fed forecasts of 3.5% unemployment late this year, next year, uh, those will turn out to be way too optimistic. Wow. 
uh, tell me, so if we start to see the problems in the bond market, like you're saying, for, for the viewers at home, how does that filter through into the real economy? So the uh, rates, you talked about mortgage rates going up to 4%. I actually don't think mortgage rates will go significantly higher from here. Uh, so it won't be the cost of capital that's going up so much. It'll just be the availability of capital. So for homeowners and investors, the access to easy financing goes away. That liquidity won't be provided as generously because while we're talking about Fed raising rates, let's not forget they're going to be shrinking their balance sheet. They might be selling assets. So what it means is the investment backdrop is going to be a lot easier. Uh, buying on the dip and holding and watching your equity portfolio rise in price, that may work over the long haul, but we could be in for some rough waters in the short term, uh, given the Fed's attempt to normalize in a world with a lot of risk, not just economic risk, but you said at the outset of your show, also clearly geopolitical risks. Absolutely. We've heard some commentators say that the Fed is trying to, to walk a narrow path, right? They don't have any leeway between fighting inflation and also not pushing the country into recession like you're talking about. What kind of indicators are you watching? I mentioned the yield curve. The yield curve, uh, the t difference, for example, between, say, the 30-year bond rate and the two-year note, that's one thing to watch. You could watch consumer sentiment, and particular data from the University of Michigan is an excellent series. As sentiment readings are near recession le near recessionary levels. Uh, there are purchasing manager indices, uh, the uh, ISM, as it's known as others, uh, those are, are still high but weakening. Uh, those are the kind of leading indicators I'd watch. Certainly even the internals in the stock market, when you see things like consumer discretionary stocks meaningfully underperform, say consumer staples, that's a sign that there's some risk. But the problem with economic data is most economic data, by the time uh, it's obvious that things have slowed, the market's already discounted it. So you have to be very careful and kind of look at what markets are saying uh, reading the tape, as the old saying goes. How about outside the United States? We have other countries or areas, the Eurozone, for example, aren't quite as strong as the United States. How are they going to handle this type of tightening environment? Well, the, I would say the Europeans really are, are grappling with significantly higher energy costs. Uh, natural gas prices in Europe are 10 times above where they are in the U.S., uh, but I would say, let's look at China. China was the first to lock down and to slow in relation to COVID. They opened first, the economy rebounded quite dramatically. Uh, inflation went up quite significantly for China, up to 5%. And now China is easing policy. Their inflation rates fall into only around 1%. Uh, and their growth is slowing. And uh, to me, that's the preview of how the U.S. is going to look. Much weaker growth and also much lower inflation. But to the extent that Europe is soft, that's another reason why you'd want to be cautious on the outlook. The U.S. is slowing. China already is in a slowdown. And of course, Europe then will probably be the last in line to follow that path. So just in a word, Joseph, before we finish, you're confident that these moves by the Fed, they will bring down inflation? Oh, they will bring down inflation. I'm hopeful they won't go as much as they say they will, because as you said, it's a very fine line. And the Fed's record in bringing about soft landings is pretty poor. Joseph Livornia, America First Policy Institute. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And Russian President Vladimir Putin says Western sanctions are hurting the country's economy, but he's confident they'll adapt and recover. Here's what he said at a press conference yesterday. There is no doubt that the new realities will require deep structural changes in our economy. I will not hide it. It will not be easy. They will lead to a temporary increase in inflation and unemployment. Putin says the West is trying to economically cripple Russia following its invasion of Ukraine. 
The U.S., EU and other allies have imposed heavy sanctions against Russia's financial and banking sectors, including freezing $300 billion worth of Russian central bank's foreign holdings. It's about half of its foreign reserve. But it looks like Russia made good on its debt payment due yesterday. There was worries it wouldn't. Reuters reported today J.P. Morgan received the dollar payment and the money would now make its way to the Russian bondholders. There were concerns the payments would be missed. The Kremlin insisted it had the money, had instructed its bank to make the payment, but that the sanctions placed on Russian central bank would prevent it from going through. Seems it did go through. Russia still has $40 billion in dollar debt outstanding. The U.S. froze Russia's foreign dollar assets after it invaded Ukraine. This was an almost unprecedented economic sanction. May have dealt a blow to Russia's offensive, but analysts worry that other countries may now be less willing to hold U.S. dollar reserves in case they're frozen. This could potentially threaten the U.S. dollar's role as the world's reserve currency. The Wall Street Journal reports China and Saudi Arabia are now in talks to do oil deals in Chinese yuan, sidestepping the U.S. dollar. The U.S. and Saudi have a long-standing deal that oil can only be sold for U.S. dollars. So what's ahead? I talked to an expert in D.C. about it yesterday. So joining us now is Gal Luft. He is the author of De-Dollarization. So joining us now is Gal Luft. He is the author of De-Dollarization, also the co-director for the Institute for the Analysis of Global Security in Washington, D.C. Gal, were you surprised when you heard the reports that Saudi may potentially price their oil in Chinese yuan? Not at all. In fact, uh, we predicted it in the book uh, already in 2019. Uh, we saw it coming. Um, and the reason is that... Uh, you know, it's not. Uh, there are geopolitical reasons, of course, having to do with uh, decline in the U.S.-Saudi relations, but there are also economic reasons that uh, um, you know China is now uh, the the main export destination of uh, Saudi oil. Uh, the future is tied to China, and also um, they don't want to own too many of those um, of those dollars. And like uh, several other countries that are now um, uh, reconsidering their portfolio allocation in terms of currencies that their central banks are, are holding. Um, you know, in the past eight months, uh, we've had two cases in which uh, the government of the United States uh, froze central bank assets. The first time was in Afghanistan and now with Russia. This is unprecedented. And it sends a, a, a message to central bankers that maybe it's time to diversify your portfolio, not keep all your eggs in one basket. Is it is it not the case though that if the if certain countries behave themselves, the U.S. may not have any reason to freeze their assets, like we saw in Russia recently, for example? Yeah, but that's not how they see it. You know, uh, this is the narrative that we can tell ourselves. Um, that if everybody behaves exactly like we want them to behave, uh, there will be no reason to, to pick a fight with us. But that's not how those countries see the reality. They have a very different narrative and very different perspective of, of their uh, role in the world, and quite frankly, uh, about uh, uh, the behavior of the United States. So um, 
this is not a place where you can uh, uh, arbitrate it or negotiate it. This is how they see the world, and they are preparing accordingly. And now we know that about 80% of oil deals are done in U.S. dollars. We know there's a massive amount of dollar-denominated debt outside of the United States, so there's high demand for dollars. If it were the case, as you're describing, were to go the opposite way, people don't want to start to hold dollars, they want to shift away from the dollar, what would it mean for America? It will simply mean that we will not have the ability to run those crazy deficits that we have been running. Uh, you know, on a, on a normal year, we run about a trillion dollar deficit. The past two years have not been so normal, so we've had two and three trillion dollars a year deficit. This is not sustainable. And uh, if, if you want to run deficits in the trillions, you need uh, somebody to, to fund this. And, and as long as people were, had faith in the dollar, uh, they were willing to do it, but this is changing, and it's changing um, quite fast. Even I'm surprised how fast it's all happening. So the implication is we're not going to be able to to um, uh, have this uh, cheap money. We're not going to be able to able to run those uh, uh, big deficits. It means less money for the U.S. government to spend on defense, education, health, whatever. One for us to watch, Gal Luft, the author of De-Dollarization. Appreciate it. Thank you. An energy watchdog is warning of the biggest oil supply crisis in decades. So what does that mean for the economy and gas prices? Anthony's Evelyn Lee spoke with an expert. Three million barrels per day. That's how much is at risk in the oil market because of Russian sanctions and buyer reluctance. The International Energy Agency, or IEA, said Wednesday that those disruptions are threatening to create a global oil supply shock. It doesn't look good when you lose that much oil from the, the Russian sanctions. It's uh, approximately 700,000 barrels that won't be uh, imported into the United States anymore. Jason Isaac, the director of Life Powered at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, says it could drive costs even higher. The IEA expects this to depress global economic growth. Because of this, it lowered its forecasts for world oil demand. But that won't be enough to balance the lost supply from Russia. ISEC says for the U.S. economy to recover, it needs to return to levels of production that it saw under the previous administration. He does see the U.S. slowly but surely increasing production. And at the moment, Europe is much more dependent on Russian natural gas. Europe is entirely dependent on Russian natural gas. Germany, 40% of their natural gas comes from Russia. They're not disconnecting that pipeline. They're not going to cut off uh, that supply. They just can't. He says Germany's cost for electricity is up 60 percent and freezing deaths are on the rise. In the meantime, high oil prices lifted other fuel prices as well. That includes natural gas and coal. To counter that, the U.S. is releasing 30 million barrels of crude oil from its reserves. But Isaac says these releases won't be significant at all. You may see a couple of pennies at the pump relief one week and then you're going to see it probably back up a nickel the next week. Uh, so those are insignificant. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, last year the U.S. consumed almost 20 million barrels of crude oil a day. Isaac says he hopes OPEC will increase production to offset what will be lost from Russian sanctions. Evelyn Lee, NTD News. And onto Wall Street, all three major indexes closed higher today. The Dow rose 418 points, one and two tenths of a percent. S&P 500 gained 54 points, also one and two tenths of a percent. But the Nasdaq, the big winner again today, gained 174, 178 points, one and one third of a percent. 
European markets were mixed. Chinese markets were in the green. Hang Seng Index in Hong Kong rose 7%. The Shanghai and Shenzhen Index is both up 2 Comes on news China's top financial policymaker promised stability in the Chinese stock market going forward. Comes after a steep decline in Chinese stocks this year. It wiped out about $1.3 trillion worth, or 17% of the market value of China's main index. But will the policymakers' words restore calm in the Chinese markets, or will investors want to invest in the Chinese market now at all? Anthony's Don Ma takes a look. Chinese officials said Wednesday they would introduce, quote, powerful measures to lower risks in the Chinese economy. But will Beijing's positive words restore investors' trust in the Chinese market? Milton Azradi, chief economist from financial communications agency Vested, says investors are not convinced. Uh, the words won't do it. They want, they want to see the color of his money, uh, to use an old expression from the West. They want the government to do something, not just talk about it, do something. Despite Beijing's reassurance, Brian McCarthy from MacroLens, an investor consulting firm, points out some concerns that investors should be aware of. The fact that Chinese tech is broadly getting reined in, uh, and, and the point is being made that they exist to serve the state primarily, their shareholders secondarily. There are geopolitical worries to consider as well. Now, if the U.S. sanctions China, and we go to a rapid, very serious global decoupling, then, then China tech and everything else is going to collapse, and so is the S&P. Hizrati also points out concerns for investors. The bad debt is still bad, um, and the threat of more companies de defaulting is still present, and everyone involved in the Chinese market, whether they're Chinese or foreign, is well aware of this risk. McCarthy and Hizrati give some advice for anyone looking to invest in China. I would never, for the, for the last 15 years, I would have not said I would invest in China without reservation. If um, I am an investor, and if I had no use for the money, if I, th if I was willing to tie up the money for five or 10 years, I would buy. If I ha needed the money in the next one or two years, I would sell. Israeli says it's not apparent that Beijing is ready to resolve China's economic problems or even knows what to do. Don Ma, NTD News. And cryptocurrency is now legal in Ukraine. Crypto donations pouring in there. President Vladimir Zelensky signed a digital assets bill into law yesterday, meaning crypto exchanges can now operate legally and banks will open accounts for crypto companies. It's according to Ukraine's Ministry of Digital Transformation. According to the Blockchain Association of Ukraine, the Ukrainian crypto exchange called Kuna Exchange is responsible for the technical side of the project. Kuna has been helping crypto donations to Ukraine to help in the war against Russia. Important to note, the new law doesn't make crypto legal tender, but it does set up a regulatory structure. And if you're a crypto buff back in the United States with tax day quickly approaching, many people are wondering whether they have to report their cryptocurrency on their tax returns. And how do you do it? Anthony's Phil Zoe has the details. Tax day is coming up next month on April 18th. And Uncle Sam wants to know just how much crypto you're trading. U.S. taxpayers are going to see on Form 1040 the major tax form that almost every U.S. taxpayer has to, to uh, fill out. They're going to be asked at any time during 2021, did they receive, 
sell, exchange, or otherwise just dispose of any financial interest in any virtual currency. And they'll have to either say yes or no. I spoke to Chandan Loda, the co-founder of Cointracker, a software package that helps you calculate crypto taxes and track your portfolio. It's the first question after people's demographic information. So under what conditions will you have to check yes? People have spent any cryptocurrency in exchange for goods or services, traded cryptocurrency and cashed out for fiat like USD, or traded crypto to crypto like Bitcoin to Ethereum. In addition, you're going to want to fill out a capital gains form like an 8949 to indicate all of the capital gains and losses that you had during that tax year. Patrick White of the crypto accounting platform Bitwave agrees. If you have touched digital assets, you should check that that box. Just always check it if you have any sort of cryptocurrency uh, exchange accounts. Now, where it gets very interesting is it's not always obvious what exactly that means. President Biden just signed an executive order asking government agencies to look into the risk and benefits of cryptocurrency. The White House said about 16% of Americans, or roughly 40 million people, have invested, traded, or used cryptocurrency. Phil Zoe, NTD News. But that will take a quick break, but still to come, stay with us. Netflix is trying to stop people from sharing their passwords. It's testing two new features. And Chicago restaurants come up with the first-of-a-kind event to help Ukrainian refugees. We have that and much more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. With COVID restrictions lifted, New York City's bars were gearing up for a historic St. Patrick's Day celebration. I've been able to celebrate for the past two years. In 2020, indoor dining was shut down completely in March. Last year, indoor dining was capped at 25%. Dublin House is on the city's Upper West Side. The pub was expecting big crowds today. They've been an Irish staple for 100 years. Owner Michael Cormican says the business has been tough during the pandemic, but he's hoping Thursday's sales will give him a boost. They've ordered 15 kegs of Guinness to keep up with the demand. That's three times more than they would normally order. Dublin House cut back in its hours during the pandemic, but hours are expanded for St. Patrick's Day. Still time to get there. But if you want to stay in, beware. Netflix is testing out a new way to get you to pay to use their service. Yesterday, it was announced two new features it's looking at that could stop users sharing their passwords. The first feature would have subscribers add sub-accounts to their current account for people they don't live with. The new sub-accounts would be added to standard and premium plans, come with separate logins and profiles that also cost an additional $2 to $3 every month. Netflix also testing a feature where users can transfer their profile to a new account or make it a sub-account. Company says they'll be testing the new features in Chile, Costa Rica, and Peru over the next few weeks. No word yet if it also plans to test the features in the United States. 
And Ukraine's neighbors have taken in over 3 million refugees, according to the UN. Supplying their basic needs requires a lot of funding, and that's becoming a challenge. So Chicago restaurants came up with a first-of-its-kind event to help out. And today's Con Fredrickson has the story. Over 70 chefs and 1,600 guests packed Chicago's Navy Pier Ballroom with food and generosity Wednesday evening. Their goal was to raise funds to feed Ukrainian refugees. So I emailed about 30 chefs that I have in my phone, and I said, hey guys, let's do an event for the people of Ukraine. I'll do all the legwork, but let's do it together. Everybody said yes. Stara Stegner, a chef with two James Beard Awards, said the support from Chicago restaurants was overwhelming. We've got Demero, which is an Ethiopian restaurant. We've got Kerry Nahabedian, which is the Brandi, which is a really high-end restaurant. Lee Wolin, the Boca Group. Paul Kahan from One Off Hospitality. Stephanie Izard has a representation here. Really chefs from all over the Chicago city. Publicizing the event in such a short time was no small feat. We did uh, contact all of our customers and ask them if they want to come over. Some of them can, some of them just like, I will write a check and help them whatever I can. Mark Schulman, the president of Eli's Cheesecake Company, thought the event was remarkable. We're so excited to support Chefs for Ukraine and uh, to come together with other hospitality people and to have an event in Navy Pier, which is just so historic, is very meaningful. Shulman's wife, Maureen, shared the ingredients of their Ukrainian-inspired cheesecake. The Kiev cake is a meringue and nut cake. So we have meringue in our cheesecake tonight, our original plain cheesecake, and we have nuts on it. From cheesecake to lemon mousse to ceviche, all you can eat, the guests complimented the chef's talents. The pastries are amazing, but I had a meatballs, um, I've had pizza, I've had ceviche, because I'm Hispanic, so I like ceviche and it's been so good. I've had some delicious um, deep dish pizza, which had so much uh, flavor, it was amazing. And thank you chefs, thank you for making this a special event. And hopefully they'll raise a lot of money. Anatoly Kamara, a renowned Ukrainian-born painter living in Chicago, has a son in Ukraine and other family members in refuge. He is worried but touched by the generosity of the Chicago people. He donated his paintings for the event's silent auction. I believe in free Ukraine, and I believe you are the hero. This is why I'm painting. <laughs> Donations will go to World Central Kitchen, a nonprofit organization with staff serving meals to Ukraine's refugees on the ground. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And that's the latest from the NTD business team and myself, Paul Graney. You can still catch NTD Evening News with Stephanie Cox. That's at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. You can also follow me on Twitter as well if you're there. For the NTD business team, that's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.